Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance podcast. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode is episode 176. It's titled, Are Most Americans Insolvent? I recently got an email from Alexandra. She writes, I just got my MBA. And in my ethics class, we talked a lot about shareholder versus stakeholder theory. I'd be curious to hear what you think about the claim in this article that the stock market has nothing to do with the economy. The article was from Quartz. It was written by Theodore Keeney, but he was profiling Peter Georgescu, who has a new book. It's called Capitalist Arise and Economic Inequality, Grow the Middle Class and Heal the Nation. Now, I have an MBA, and I actually was really kind of excited that she got an MBA and they had an ethics class. We did not have an ethics class when I got my MBA, and we didn't really talk about different stakeholders in companies. We talked about a stakeholder would be the employees, the community, certainly the owners, the management, and the shareholders. The emphasis when I got my MBA was this, maximize shareholder wealth. It was all about the shareholder. And we're going to talk about that maybe a little bit in this episode, potentially in a follow-up. But first, we want to talk about something that George Eskew claimed in the article and in his book. Most Americans, 60% are insolvent. The article states that Georgescu writes in his book, for the past four decades, capitalism has been slowly committing suicide. He goes on, the stock market has nothing to do with the economy per se. It has everything to do with only one thing. How much profits can companies squeeze out of the current crop of flowers in the garden? Pardon the metaphor, but what corporations do, they squeeze profits. Now, we've talked about that in most recently in episode 165. Why do we invest? How companies are choosing to buy back stocks and cut labor costs versus investing in capital projects that could increase the company's innovation and boost its long-term profits. They're focused on the short-term benefit of boosting earnings per share simply by buying back 
stocks. And so that's a theme we've covered in the show. But then Georgescu goes on, nearly 60% of American households are technically insolvent and adding to their debt loads each year. In addition, income inequality in the U.S. is reaching new peaks. The top layer of earners now claim a larger portion of the nation's income than ever before, more even than the peak in 1927, just two years before the onset of the Great Depression. After reading that, there really wasn't any references to where the data was coming from. So I decided I'd buy the book and read it. And the centerpiece of the book is Exhibit 1. It's Chapter 2, and it's where he claims, he shows his chart, Exhibit 1, the after-tax surplus of households by deciles. So after they receive their income, receive any type of government transfers, then they spend whatever they're spending, what do they have left over? And it shows six of the deciles are insolvent in that they're not getting enough income to offset what they're spending. Here's what he writes. Let me restate what the chart shows. Nearly 60% of the U.S. population, more than half of all American households, add thousands of dollars to their debt load every year. He says that he and his co-author, Dave Dorsey, were stunned when they saw that this was data put together by the economist, Andrew Terrell. Oh, it says in the book that he was a former White House staffer. And they had met and went through the charts that Terrell put together. I would have been stunned too, except Exhibit 1 didn't have any footnotes, explanations, where the data came from. How was it compiled? In the book, Georgescu mentions a article or editorial he had published in the New York Times. It had the same title, Capitalist Arise. It was published in August 2015. In there, he states, 40% are broke. This is 40% of American households. Every year, they spend more than they have. But it didn't have any footnotes either. But he mentions that he submitted the piece to the New York Times, caught the eye of the editor, and a long back and forth of revisions. He was told it was going to appear in two days. Then he got a call from a fact checker. They wanted verification of what he was saying. He sent back a quick email with some of the income inequality charts, but he didn't have an answer for Exhibit 1. He says he hadn't done the analysis himself, but it was this economist, Andrew Terrell. Later that evening, Terrell called Georgescu back and said a woman from the New York Times had contacted him directly and wanted to know the exact pages that he relied on from the Bureau of Labor Statistics for 
for this quote, for this exhibit, to be able to say that 40% of U.S. households are insolvent. Terrell's quote is, she wanted to see the actual sheets of paper, I think. I didn't know newspapers did this. Jescu hadn't even given the fact checker Terrell's contact information. But the New York Times was wanted to verify it. I wanted to verify it. I'm, I'm looking at this. This is the key of this book, the key of the argument that 40% of Americans are, are in default. And I couldn't find the data, certainly in the book. I'll talk about what I could find later in the show, but I don't see data that says that many every year are spending that much more than they they receive an income. So every year they're going into debt, not close to half of the U.S. population. The story of Georgescu's life is absolutely amazing. He writes in the New York Times editorial, this country has given me remarkable opportunities. I'm an off-the-boat immigrant, having arrived in the United States as a teenager from Romania in 1954. I'd been separated from my parents when I was seven because I had traveled to the United States, could not return to Romania when it was taken over by the Soviet Union. When I was about 10, I was placed in a hard labor camp along with my 15-year-old brother. With the help of the American people and the intervention of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, we were reunited with our parents after five years in the camp. Through kindness and compassion, I was invited by the headmaster of the Phillips Exeter Academy to attend his school. From there, I went to Princeton, and the Stanford Business School. He joined an advertising firm as a young associate, Young and Rubicam, Y&R. He later became their CFO. In the latter, latter half of the 90s, he led them through a global expansion and initial public offering. He served on the board of eight public companies, Levi Strauss, Toys R Us, and International Flavors and Fragrances. The novelist Cynthia Ozick wrote, Data is memory without history. Data is memory without history. We need context. This chart, Exhibit 1, no footnote, no explanation where the data came from. The chart that says 40% of the U.S. populace essentially is insolvent. That's the data. The memory, the history we have is the history of Georgescu. There's nothing in his history to suggest that he's misleading us. It's just he didn't put the explanation. It was compiled, I believe him, compiled by The Economist. Andrew Terrell, and he just didn't didn't have it. He should have presented it better. But I believe that the intentions of Georgescu. Now, later in the show, I'll, I'll share with you what I was able to find. I couldn't find exactly the replication. I don't believe it's quite that extreme. 
income inequality is real and the those in the lower deciles are increasing their debt load. And I have some data I'll share with you on that. But this importance of data, I got an email in August from Steve and he writes, hello, David, I began listening to your podcast early this year and I found it to be very interesting and insightful. I appreciate what you do. I started with the first episode and am now up to episode 140. I have a differing opinion on anthropogenic climate change, and that is why I'm writing. I prefer to differentiate between climate change, which has been occurring since the Earth was formed, and anthropogenic climate change, which is the issue we are currently facing. I'm not an anthropogenic climate change denier, but I am a skeptic. I believe that my skepticism is justified because much of the recent climate research is funded by powerful public and private institutions that stand to benefit from a population's embrace of anthropogenic climate change. There are many instances in which this profit-influenced research has been manipulated to give a desired result. Several comments you made in episode 140 are misleading and untrue. For example, you tie the periodic flooding in Venice, Italy, to anthropogenic climate change. Like you, I've been to Venice and I've walked on the raised platforms to stay out of the water. But it is well established that Venice is flooding because it is sinking. I'm not accusing you of intentionally misleading your listeners. And I do not believe you would do that. But I'm concerned that one of your episode 140 sponsors was Wonder Capital, a solar energy investment company. Your listening audience is growing larger. I hope that trend continues. I also hope that in future episodes, you will will avoid complicated issues that may lead to inaccurate statements. He's correct. Venice is sinking. I wrote him back. Thanks for writing. Frankly, I completely forgot Venice was sinking, so that was clearly a lousy example of rising sea levels. Although the North Adriatic Sea is rising, and I I have studies on that. But I go on. I'm a skeptic about most things, which is one of the points of the episode. Nobody really knows anything anything. All we have are probabilities and hypotheses that we then aim to disprove. So I agree with you that science is never settled and it is never an absolute fact. And that's why I gave an example of gravity, that even the concept of gravity is up for debate. We will never know for sure whether anthropogenic climate change is real or it is just a natural phenomena. The timescales are too great. So we have to make our best judgment and decide if the cost to address the issue is worth the potential benefits and savings. I have no doubt there are compromised scientists on both sides of the anthropogenic climate change issue who are backed by big money. 
I'd like to think, on balance, most scientists are honest and seeking to do real science, which means developing hypotheses, hypotheses, and then seeking to disprove it. That's what science is. I wonder, Capital, they did sponsor the podcast. That was a coincidence. They, I, I do whatever. I have complete editorial control of this show. And I do the episode on whatever I'm interested in that particular week. And Wonder Capital just happened to be the sponsor that week. And actually, they happen to be, if you're listening to the, the their sponsor this week, too. It's a coincidence. They sponsor the episode, and I'm appreciative of that. I will not shy away from complicated topics. And I told him that. Because that's how we learn. And I do make mistakes. That was probably one of my most dumb mistakes that I've made. Not the dumbest. The dumbest is when I said the Hajj Stampede, which is in Mecca in the Saudi Arabia, is in India. That did, I mean, Mecca wasn't in India, but I, somehow when I said Stampede, I don't remember what episode that was. It's in Saudi, it's in Saudi Arabia. I also mispronounced Richard Feynman, premier physicist. I mispronounced his name, and I've done other things. So when I make a mistake... I'll, I'll try to correct it. If it's something like this, Venice is sinking. Not the best example of climate change. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. 
In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Seth Godin had a powerful post the other day about data. He says, real breakthroughs are sometimes accompanied by new data, by new metrics, by new ways of measurement. But unless we agree in advance on what's happening, it's difficult to accomplish much. If you don't like what's happening, an easy way out appears to be to blame the messenger. After all, if the data, whether it's an event, a result, or a law of physics, isn't true, you're off the hook. The argument is pretty easy to make. If the data has ever been wrong before, if there's ever been bias or a mistake, or a theory that's been improved well, then who's to say it's right this time? Throw it all out. That's the cowardly and selfish thing to do. Don't believe anything that makes you look bad. All video is suspect. As is anything that is reported, journaled, or computed. The problem is becoming more and more clear. Once we begin to doubt the messenger, we stop having a clear way to see reality. The conspiracy theories begin to multiply. If everyone is entitled to their own facts and their own narrative, then what exists other than direct emotional experience? We need emotion and we need data and we need to understand the context of the data and the authority of the person delivering the data. We understand how it's compiled. I saw this clearly the other day. That, that tragic massacre in Las Vegas. 58 people died from one shooter. Yet within the next day, I saw on Facebook from somebody I know, he wrote, yes, this doesn't add up. I listened to 20 minutes of police scanner recording, and they mention more than once that there were two confirmed shooters. This was in the midst of this massacre and, and the scanner, and there was a lot of confusion. He later linked to an article from a, a website, one of these not even going to give the link. I'll put the link in the show notes. I, I don't have it there. It was some, I don't think, credible, credible short, short source. But he says, I believe it's possible that the truth of the Las Vegas false flag operation might actually resist the complete obfuscation by the mainstream media seen in previous similar events due to the ubiquity of cell phones and social media. He's saying this massacre was a false flag event. And what is that? Wikipedia says that describes covert operations, covert operations that are designed to deceive in such a way that activities appear as though they're being carried out by individual entities, groups, or nations other than those who actually planned 
and executed them. He's saying it was a front, that there was not one lone shooter. And it gets down to who are you going to trust? Subsequent investigation has shown that it was indeed one shooter. But if our default response is to doubt everything, I was amazed. One of the common photos shown about this incident was taken by David Becker. Photo of two member, audience members that were in the concert running and they're, they're crouched down. He says, he wrote in the Washington Post, after capturing photographs of the final acts of Route 91, he headed back to the media tent to start filing my photographs. After about five to ten minutes, I heard very loud popping sounds, and I went outside to see what was happening. And a security guy, security guy said it was just firecrackers. So I went back to work. The second time I heard the popping sounds, somebody said to me, it was just speakers or sound equipment. And again, I went back to the media tent. Then the noises went again, and that's when the crowd started to flee. I went outside and saw a lot of people panicking, running for the exit that was right by the media tent. I grabbed my camera and went back outside and found a place where I could see what was happening and also where I wouldn't be in the way of people. So I stood on the table and started to shoot, thinking to myself still that this isn't really happening. It's just the speakers popping. It was so dark. I couldn't really see what was happening. There were a lot of people crying, speaking on cell phones and ducking for cover. As the crowd thinned out, I was able to get a little closer to try to see what was going on and take some pictures. And I'm still thinking to myself, it's just the speakers. There's nothing going on. There were groups of people helping each other everywhere and a real sense of people running for cover. People were fleeing. They were panicking. The gunfire was sporadic. It would stop. And then more shots, then a law, and then more shots. I could hear people yelling at them to shut off the lights, to be quiet. People were cowering. They were very fearful for their lives. A woman tripped right in front of me. A man shielded a woman with his body before I saw them both get up and run away. A man in a wheelchair was helped to an exit. I was trying to capture anything that was moving that had good lighting. That was critical. It was so dark, and there was limited lighting. It was really hard to get a sense of what was happening. At this stage, I still just thought it was a speaker popping. So I was trying to capture people's emotions and a sense of the panic that was around me. I went back into the media tent and called my colleague to see if he could find out what was happening. And I still didn't know what was going on. And he said that he had found that the police had called a code red and set up a perimeter. It was then I started looking at my photographs. And what I was seeing was just unbelievable. It had been so dark outside, I couldn't see the details. I just saw a lot of people laying on the ground, thinking... They were playing possum. But now I could see people covered in blood, and I thought, this is real. In the moment, he didn't know. People in the scanners didn't know. It's only afterward that we start getting data and doing the investigation that we know. But we have to believe. We have to understand the context, the history of who's presenting the information. 
which is why an understanding of, in Torjescu's book, it's, it's so important to actually put sources and how the data was compiled. Because I did find a source, the Congressional Budget Office. They're a federal agency within the legislative branch of the U.S. government. They provide budget and economic information to Congress. And they have a history of being, and they are nonpartisan, and they are a credible source. They put together a study in 2016's It's Trends in Family Wealth, from 1989 to 2013. They had five pages of explanations of where they got the data. Most of it came from the Survey of Consumer Finances. And this is a survey. So it's families filling in information on what are they spending? How are they spending their money? How has their debt levels changed? But it's it's based on survey data. And that's why they, and, and the data to, to figure out the income equality and looking at debt and assets level, it's not clear cut. So they actually ended up pulling together from two different data sources, but it's a fascinating study. And I'll link to it in the show notes, which you can get at moneyfortherestofus.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email the show notes to you weekly. Also, I include a a, an essay that only goes to people on my insider's guide. So you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. But let me share some of what they found in the study. Here's a quote from it. Unlike families in other parts of the wealth distribution, those at or below the 25th percentiles in the years between 1989 and 2013, held more in debt than they had in assets on average. In 1989, families in that group were about $1,000 in debt. By 2007, on average, the group was about $2,000 in debt. But by 2013, they were about $13,000 in debt on average. So that lower quartile, their debt is increasing. The study says the share of families in debt, those whose total debt exceeds their total assets, so technically insolvent, remained almost unchanged between 1989 and 2007, and then increased 50% between 2007 and 2013. In 2013, those families were more in debt than their counterparts had been either in 1989 or 2007. And then it goes into detail how the debt is increasing, and much of it is student loans. So by that study, it's not 50% or 60%. And in this episode, I've said it was 40 because that 40% is what the New York Times editorial said was insolvent, 60% is what the book said, and that's what the table was. The Congressional Budget Office is is suggesting it's 25%. But the bottom line is a large percentage of the U.S. population is not making their ends meet. 
and are having to take on more and more debt. And that's unsustainable. And so the question is, why? Why? And that is what we're going to have to talk about in another episode, most likely the next episode. So episode 177, I'm leaving for a trip to Japan, planning on recording it there, but if something comes up, what we need to look at. And so this book that that Georgescu put together is really powerful in terms of some of the concept. You know, why? He blames corporations, businesses for causing, being a source of much of the income inequality that we're seeing. It's not that simple, though. And, and that's why we need a full episode to look at income inequality and, and what are some of the reasons for it. Because it's not it's like climate change. It's not clear cut. We have some hypotheses. We aim to disprove them. But the bottom line is we need to look at any data, put it into context, understand the authority and the credibility, the history of who's providing that data. Sure, they've made mistakes in the past, but that doesn't mean we ignore everything that they produce. So that's episode 176. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Also on Money for the Rest of Us is Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is a trusted guide for those who manage their own money. We have over 850 members. We help each other in navigating the complexity of investing. You can find the tools there and learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education and not considered your specific risk profile. Not provided investment advice, simply general educational money, investing in and the economy. Have a great week.